would have you look with me at the third chapter of Judges. This morning we're going to finish out this chapter which speaks of two judges. One fairly well known because of his actions. The other hardly known at all. And the second is the one I pointed out in the introduction to this book that only gets one verse in the whole book concerning his activity as a judge. Shamgar. He is mentioned in Deborah's song briefly again in the fifth chapter. But this is all that we know about him in the 31st verse. We'll get there later. Both of these, Ehud and Shamgar, represent unusual deliverance or unexpected deliverance. We saw last week with Othniel in the middle of the third chapter. This is what we think of when we think of a judge. Through military might and help of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel in the 10th verse. He went out and made war. He fought against the king of Mesopotamia, and the Lord helped him. They overcame the king of Mesopotamia, and the Lord gave the people of Israel rest for 40 years. That's the normal pattern, and that pattern plays out again several different times in the book of Judges. These two that end the third chapter are sort of outliers. And what we learn from this, I, I suppose at least one thing, is that the Lord is not confined to a certain pattern, either in the way he delivered his people through the judges or the way that he delivers his people today. Your testimony is probably very different than mine. The Lord probably used different scriptures, certainly different preachers of those scriptures, different circumstances, different homes, any number of things in my salvation testimony and yours may be different and it would be wrong of us to try to see that the Lord does the same things with everyone in the same pattern through the same circumstances. These two judges stand out in opposition to that. Nevertheless, the end is the same. With both of them, the Lord delivers the people out of great harm and trouble and trial, and their end is deliverance or salvation. And the same for me and you. Some of you have great deliverance testimonies. The Lord intervened in your life, drew you out of great sin. Some of you were saved early in life, came to an understanding of grace and what Christ has done as a child and did not have opportunity to live out that life of sin against God. We can thank him and give him praise for those of us whom he has saved in that way. And that salvation is no less great than one drawn out of a lifestyle of very heinous sin before God. Before we look at these two men and their judging of Israel, I want to give you three preliminaries. The first, a necessary reminder. The second, an honest question. And then third, a sneak peek at the end. 
So let me, let me give you a, a necessary reminder. And this is needed because of Ehud and his actions. Let me read what he does before I give you the reminder in verse 12 of the third chapter. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was a double-edged, and it was double-edged, and a cubit in length. And he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king replied, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in, the cool, in his cool private chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So the king arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the dagger out of his belly. And his entrails came out. Then Ehud went through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look. And to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed. And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they were delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sirah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. Then he delivered. Then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. Give us an understanding of it. Show us Christ in it. We ask it for his sake. Amen. So here is the necessary reminder. We need not shy away from Ehud and his actions. If we are tempted to shy away from him, then certainly we're going to be tempted to shy away from Jephthah and his actions. 
The reminder is this, a verse that we know well. Paul wrote to Timothy in the third chapter, the 16th verse. And it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Especially stories and accounts and narratives like these. Paul wrote to Timothy, the scriptures are profitable and that word means helpful, serviceable, or advantageous to us as Christians for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this account of Ehud and Eglon, and even the what we would call gory details of it, this is inspired of God, helpful for us. Paul also reminded the Ephesian elders of this very thing. He said to them upon his departure in Acts 20, I have kept nothing back from you that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly. I therefore testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men. And what was his basis for saying that? He says, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. It's texts like these and Jephthah and others in the scriptures that Unless we were committed to walking through the scriptures together, as a preacher, I would never select this of my own volition and just try to make sense out of it. But since we're walking through this book together and have intentioned to see every part of it, we come to it this morning realizing it is profitable and it's going to benefit us in some way because it is the word of the living God. So that's the reminder. Now, here's an honest question when we look at this text. When we consider Ehud's actions against Eglon, and when we consider really the situation that, that made this necessary, the honest question is this. Is it right to ask to be delivered from a mess of your own making? Look at verse 12, if you would, in the third chapter. And notice the word again. If you want, you can look over to the first verse of chapter 4, and you'll see the word again, again. It runs throughout this book in the context of the word in verse 12. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. If you skip down to the 12th verse excuse me, the 15th verse, you'll notice the children of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard them and raised up a deliverer. So the answer to the question, is it right to ask to be delivered from a mess of your own making? Is Yes, it is. Now, very often, perhaps, as you're praying about a certain situation, it will come to your mind that you are praying for deliverance or help for the alleviation of consequences that you've brought on yourself through poor decisions. Anybody ever been there? We've all been there. And the temptation would be to say, this is not something that I can ask the Lord to help me in because I've done it myself. And that just leaves you and it leaves me in a position to try to work ourselves out of this situation, right? But notice the pattern that is set. 
the children of Israel again did evil. And what's the evil? The evil is, is worshiping Baal in the Ashtoreths. The evil was sexual fornication. The evil was intermarrying with the pagans. The evil was not tearing down the altars. The evil was being disobedient to the Lord and not driving the people out of the land. The evil in the 12th verse, though it's just one simple word, there is much behind it, isn't there? And so they again do evil in the sight of the Lord. And then in verse 15, when the consequences for those evil actions, they have resulted in service to the king of Moab for 18 years. And sometimes we read over these words too easily. The word serve here in the 14th verse, they were enslaved to this king for 18 long years. And as the cycle and pattern goes, the children of Israel cry out to the Lord. The Lord hears them and raises up a deliverer. The answer to the question, is it right to cry out to be delivered from a mess of your own making is yes. And the only reason the answer is yes is because God is full of mercy. He is full of mercy. How can we read Judges? How can we take an honest inventory of our own lives and reflect over time and time and time again? The Lord has come to our aid and helped us and not reach the conclusion that our God is indeed full, completely full of mercy. And might I remind you the definition of mercy it is God acting on your behalf when you deserve nothing. And it can also be stated, it is God not giving you what you deserve. Their just deserts in this chapter would to be left under the enslavement of the king of Moab. But remember the covenant God had made with them. I will be your God. You will be my people. And here he finds this people crying out to him. And in mercy, he does not turn a deaf ear and say, you're getting just what you deserve. Most likely, God has dealt with you with that same compassion and with that same mercy. And he has not left you to yourself. And he has not said to you, you are getting just what you deserve. Far, far to the contrary, right? He has bestowed grace and given you what you don't deserve. One person has said, in your troubles, whether a result of your sins or not, you have a compassionate God who actually hears your cries for help and comes to save you in your distress. And so regardless of the situation, Regardless of the gravity of the situation, if you can look back and retrace your steps, and with every step you see, I willingly transgressed some law of God, I willingly transgressed the light that he has given me in his scriptures, and I have ended up in this absolutely horrific circumstance, then the scriptures bid you to come to Christ humbly, crying out to him, 
beseeching him for mercy. And the scriptures also bear out that he dispenses it once again. And I think to some degree, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, most of you have it memorized, would come to bear here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. But notice there, John is calling us to confess our sins, not our goodness. He's calling us to come make an honest confession before the Lord. Even while we remember We've contributed nothing to our salvation but the sin that's made it necessary. And I think as we look at the Israelites here in the third chapter and throughout the whole book of Judges, that's exactly what they've done. They've contributed nothing to the situation except the sin that got them in the mess of it all in the first place. So we've been reminded of a necessary reminder, all scripture is inspired of God, We've also answered an honest question. Is it right to seek deliverance and pray that God would act on your behalf if you are bearing the consequences of horrible decisions? The answer is yes, only because he is a God full of mercy. Now, here's a sneak peek at the end. I've, I've talked much about the cycle of judges. A sneak peek to the end is to see that faith in Christ is the only way to break loose from the cycle. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way out of this disastrous downward spiral. And we can make application of Jesus' own words here. I am the way, truth and life. He is the way out of the downward spiral. All of these judges depict Christ's work, but they all come up short because they are not the God-man. They all come up short because they are not the Son of God. They all come up short because they have not endured the suffering and shame that he has endured on our behalf. And so now let's, let's get involved here in these verses concerning Ehud and Eglon. I've already pointed out in the 12th verse that this is the beginning of a new cycle because of the sin of the people against God in the sight of the Lord. But notice that the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. We can't miss that seemingly insignificant fact. This king, though he would grow to might by the time the third chapter ends, was nothing against the people of God until the Lord strengthened him. Here is what his name means. Eglon means little calf. And it's feminine. So one commentator has pointed out that Eglon's name's name means little effeminate calf. The Lord supplied this weak king with strength to subdue, defeat, chastise, test, try, whatever word you want to use, his own people. Which we're reminded the Lord strengthens even his enemies for his own purposes. But then the companion truth of that, he then puts them down for his own purposes. Nebuchadnezzar must surely come to mind there, right? Right? 
The Lord raises up and then he puts down. The Lord brings to great strength and then he humbles. Psalm 75 verse 7 is a verse that helps us understand that and it's particularly a good verse to remember anytime there is an, an election and you and I go and cast our vote. The verse reads, God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. This is the way the Lord strengthened or raised up Eglon. Notice what he does. In being strengthened against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 13, he gathers to himself, then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek. This is Eglon drawing these people in. And as he did so, he amassed a great army and then went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. Now, most associate the city of Palms with the city of Jericho the first city that was defeated by marching around it seven times and blowing trumpets. Now, this was a tremendous humiliation of God by this little effeminate calf of a king, Eglon. He goes and recaptures the city of conquest, Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years, enslaved under this pagan, godless king that the Lord had infused with strength. It seems counterintuitive for the Lord to want to accomplish his purposes of salvation with his people and at the same time infuse a pagan king with strength. This proves, yet again, his ways are not our ways. He has the ability to raise up enemies against himself and his own people, and then completely and utterly put them down. But let's look at the way the Lord inter intervenes. The children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And as we've pointed out almost every week, the word cried out is important because it is a vehement cry for deliverance. It's a recognition that you are in a situation that you cannot rectify. It's the recognition that the situation is so severe, so great, it's completely and utterly outside of your control, and the only thing that you can do is come before the Lord and literally beg Him to intervene. Now, the, from the New Testament perspective, we understand that we come and we come through Christ's name, we come through his work, based upon his merit, we cry out to the Lord, and the Lord hears. This is how the Lord answered the prayer of his people. And I want to point out a very important word here because it sets the whole stage for how we would understand Ehud. The Lord raised up a deliverer, a savior. Notice that the Lord did not raise up a liar, a deceiver, a murderer, or an assassin. That's the way many people view Ehud. Now granted, his, his actions may be subject, but 
He was raised up to do just this by the Lord, strengthened for this very purpose, and the Lord names him a deliverer or savior for his people. There's other details here concerning him. It says he was a Benjamite, but he was left-handed. There's a play on words there that doesn't really come out in English. Benjamin means son of the right hand. Ehud is left-handed. And this is not a positive depiction of this man. Literally, the Hebrew reads not just left-handed, but that he is shut up or impeded in the use of his right hand. It means he couldn't use his right hand, whether through some type of deformity or Injury, we don't know the situation, don't necessarily need to know. We just are told that he has no ability to use his right hand. Which is important because in the scriptures, when the Lord reveals his strength and when the Lord reveals his might, the scriptures always say the arm of the Lord and very often it's associated with the right arm of the Lord acting on behalf of his people. So that's why this is such an unusual deliverance, because the Lord is using a maimed man who has no ability to use his right hand. He is left handed, but yet he still accomplishes a great deliverance. Now, If we continue on with the story, we're told that this left handed man. By him. The children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon. And this was part of their servitude. This was part of being enslaved. They would have to give tribute of the best of their produce, the best of everything that they had. And most likely here they are sending by the hand of Ehud and this, this train of people with him a great offering of sorts of their produce or whatever it may have been. But Ehud makes himself a dagger. Double-edged, and many rightly see the association between this and Hebrews 4, verse 12, speaking of the two-edged sword, the Word of God. He makes it about a cubit in length, and he fastens it under his clothes on his right thigh. Now, this is important. The detail here is important because later Ehud is going to find himself before Eglon the king alone. And it would have been the custom... We see this played out sometimes, how one in authority will check you for a weapon. And most often, they would have checked the left thigh because a right-handed man would have hidden his dagger or his sword on his left thigh. So Ehud comes in before the king. If he was checked at all, the scriptures don't give the detail, but if he was, his, his left thigh would have been checked, all would have been clear, and he could go stand before the king completely and utterly alone. So that's why the great details are given here. He hides this dagger under his right thigh. And so he brought the tribute to the king of Eglon, king of Moab, and then we're given this detail. And again, every word of Scripture is inspired of God. This is not the author of Judges' parenthesis. We are told here that Eglon was a very fat man. Probably due 
to the fact that he was brought tribute of the Israelites over and over again of the best produce of the land, the best meat that they had, the best this and that. He was very well fed, to say the least. When he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. So Ehud now dismisses all of those who had helped him bring the tribute and he himself turns back from the stone images. And there's another bit of nuance here. The stone images represented the false gods of the people. And Ehud here being raised up by God to deliver a people, he sees these stone images and he turns from them and he turns to the king and he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And Eglon is like most, he wants to know what it is. It piques his interest. And he said to his guards, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. And when we reach verse 20, we have Eglon the king and Ehud the judge in a private chamber alone. One had been previously raised up and strengthened by God to subdue his people. Now the tables are turned. He is about to be put down. He is about to be humbled. His life is about to be taken from him by Ehud, the judge whom the Lord raises up. Ehud heightens matters by saying, I have a message, a message from God for you. So the very large king arises from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, the fat closed over it for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out. A very gruesome and gory scene. Thus the downfall of the once exalted pagan king. What does Ehud do? He escapes through the upper room, shut the doors behind him, escapes through the porch, locks the doors, and now he is on his way to rally the troops. But that leaves Eglin's servants in a quandary because the room that they were in, the cool private chamber, was his bathroom. So they don't know what to do. The doors are locked. And they said he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed. In other words, such a great amount of time has passed. They have not wanted to disturb the king. But they understand whatever business he had could have been taken care of well before now. So they're embarrassed about the timing. And he still did not open the doors. So they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. He puts down one, and he raises up another. Eglin here, an example of the Lord using people, men, whomever, for his own purposes, and then subjecting them to great humiliation. 
We're into the 26th verse here. Ehud escaped while they were delayed and passed beyond the stone images. This keeps coming up. He turned from them the first time. He makes another pass by them this time. He is escaping to Syrah and he's going to rally an army. He goes and blows the trumpet. In the mountains of Ephraim, the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. Then he said to them, follow me. For the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Now remember, this was based upon their cries for deliverance. This was the Lord acting for them based upon their coming to him, crying out. That pattern is still the same. And this is the great deliverance that he works. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men, men of valor. Not a man escaped. Why that detail? I can't tell you for certain, but I, I suppose the Lord is getting across to us the greatness of your captivity doesn't matter. 10,000 strong men of valor. And notice the detail. Not a man escaped. We can't help but see the imagery here of what it's like to be ensnared in sin. Enslaved in sin. Sin is a powerful Force, one that you and I cannot break free from. But when Christ, here pictured by Ehud, when he comes and delivers us, not a remnant of sin is left. Every link of the chain of sin is broken. And we will one day gloriously experience that in the full when Christ returns that day of resurrection. For now, the presence of sin is still with us. We're not yet free from its presence, but we are freed from its power over us. We are no longer enslaved to it if we are in Christ. That's the greatness of our salvation here pictured in the greatness of Israel's salvation through Ehud. And notice the end of this in verse 30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. That's the left-handed deliverer. Now what of this man Shamgar? This is all we have of him. After him, after Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath. The interesting thing here, this is not an Israelite. Both his name and his father's name tell us that this is not an Israelite raised up out of the people. But we're told that he, and we're led to believe here, he did this alone, much like Samson would do later. He killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. Any of you ever seen an ox goad? I haven't. And I'm taking... Some commentators um, 
depictions of an ox goad at face value. An ox goad usually was six to eight feet long. One end would be the point of a spear. The other end would be shaped more like a club. So one end you're using to spur on an ox. The other end you're using to protect yourself from an angry ox. And so Shamgar here takes this instrument and he slays 600 men. And then it just says, he also delivered Israel. Very differently than Ehud. Very differently than Othniel. Different than Deborah and Barak, which we'll see, Lord willing, next week different than Gideon, but yet he delivered them nonetheless. Both of these men wrought a great deliverance for the people of God. But they didn't break the cycle. Very next verse of chapter 4, verse 1. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. So I gave you the sneak peek at the beginning, the sneak peek at the end. So here's the end. The only way to get out of this cycle is to be found in Christ. He is the ultimate judge. He is the judge that always fully delivers his people. And in that sense, he is far different than these other deliverer judges. It's not that you and I won't fall back into sin. It's not that you and I won't again do evil in the sight of the Lord. The point is that once we are saved by Christ, once Christ has, has made himself known to us and we are found in him by faith, then the way Paul sums it up in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is the ultimate full and final deliverer of his people. And no charge thereafter will stick to you or to me. How much condemnation? Zero. That's the greatness, not of Ehud, not of Shamgar, but of Christ, the Son of God, smitten, afflicted, that's also one of the ironies here. These human judges were exalted prior to their work. The Lord strengthened them, brought them up. Christ, just the opposite, was humiliated. His humiliation in Philippians chapter 2 before his work, he was brought very low. And then 
he was highly exalted, given a name that every tongue would confess and every knee would bow to him. So we look at these judges and we learn from them. One of the chief things that we learn is to cast our eyes upon Christ, to be found in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for teaching us from it. We thank you for the principles that undergird this section of your word. Father, we know very often your deliverance for us comes in unexpected ways. Not according to the plan that we have set in our own heart or minds. Father, I pray as we study this book of Judges that it will incite in us a greater zeal and fervency to know the true judge, the Lord Jesus. The way out of the downward spiral of disobedience, provocation of you, our holy God, in bringing just wrath upon ourselves. We're thankful, Lord, that our, the wrath intended for us has fallen upon him, that he absorbed it fully. He drank the cup of your wrath to the very bottom, drained the dregs of it on our behalf. We're thankful for the great deliverance that he has opened for us and that we can be found in him the perfect Savior, Deliverer, and Judge. We ask that you, by your Spirit, would take these things and make application of them to our hearts and to our minds. Help us to learn those things that are necessary. Help us become aware of the most necessary thing in life, and that is to see Jesus Christ for who he truly is. We pray and ask your blessings upon these things, and we do so in Christ's name. Amen.